Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 566. Today's show is part one of a two-part talk I had with Colin Crabb. It's a hobby that became a business. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Colin Crabb, calling in all the way from the UK. So, Colin, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? We'll try to be. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Colin Crabb is an automotive archaeologist and past Grand Prix entrant who spent his life in perpetual motion. He was a privateer and noted dealer in historic racing cars. He raced some wonderful cars, including the Maserati 250F at Goodwood. Back in 1965, an Aston Martin DP214 and a Ford GT40 at Brands Hatch. Vic Elford and Roddy Peterson drove for his F1 team in 69 and 1970 in a Cooper, a McLaren, in a March, and in the 1960s, Colin ran a mail order business, the Complete Automobilist, that supplied hard to find parts for enthusiasts. He was the last of the serious privateers in Formula One, and he spent his life traveling the world, tracking down, restoring, and racing some of the rarest, fastest cars ever made. His book, Colin Crabb, A Thrill of the Chase, is an autobiography of his exciting life and the activities he's had around automobiles. And as a special guest today, Colin's going to be giving away to one lucky Cars Yeah subscriber a copy of this new book published by Dalton Watson. So Colin, I've told our listeners just a little tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your life and your passion for automobiles, and then we'll get into the questions. Well, I suppose you'll start off uh, the earliest part of my life remembering a car my father had before the war. I wasn't before the war, but I remember he was in 1937, BMW. And I've still got the car, actually, which is pretty unusual. Oh, my gosh. That is unusual. Yeah, it's a great, great motor car. You can drive it anywhere. Cool. Only pre-war car I can think of, which lets you keep up with modern traffic. (laughs) Delightful. I went to school. I enjoyed cars at school. My father, just to really show off, in 1956, when I was 14, arrived in a in the, one of the Lamar-winning D-type Jaguars. Oh, my gosh. 
which he, he his one of his friends, he had the first road go, he had the first uh, customer car. So I was the hero of the week, I think, at school, and then everything <laughs> yeah. went back to normal afterwards. <laughs> yes. My interest in those days was, funnily enough, archaeology. And I used to disappear from the school, and I used to look for arrowheads and prehistoric bits and pieces on, on the hills nearby. This was in North Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And I found an enormous number of these. And I always think that rather that and the Jaguar really got me going on old motor cars. Ah, oh, wonderful. The history was in interesting to me, really. Yes. I went to university, and there I misbehaved incredibly badly. I went to Edinburgh, mm -hmm. where I bought and sold dozens of cars. And we all had silly cars, and they all cost absolutely nothing, just a few dollars here and there. Yes. But, you know, it, it, was, it was really good. Then I had to go into the army. It was a family career sort of thing. My grandfather did. My father was a professional soldier. I was only a semi-professional soldier. After three years, I'd had enough and chucked it. And then I bought a little garage. I went to Australia. I bought a Maserati 250F. And to my amazement, it was, only about, it was only three years out of date as far as the Grand Prix season was concerned. So there I was, aged, what was I, 22, I suppose, Yes. driving a Grand Prix car at Goodwood. Oh, wow. And, you know, my first race was an absolute disaster because I thought I, was, I thought I was going to win it. In fact, I was leading it. But the only thing, it was a 10-lap race, and I did nine and pulled in and waved my one fan. <laughs> 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 not, not a great success. Yeah. Then cars became better cars, and we got more lovely cars, and I had a great passion for Hispano-Suiza motor cars. Mm. And I drove one round South Africa in 1966. Wow. Then I started the serious motor racing, and I, my first real car I had, lucky my American godmother left me some money. So I was able to go and invest that in the Aston Martin project car, which was 214, which was one of the 200-mile cars they built in 19... I suppose they built 1963. They ran them in 1963. They, they weren't particularly reliable, but mm -hmm. it was the best thing ever. Wow. I did a lot of club racing with that, and that taught you quite a lot, mm -hmm. particularly when the brakes totally failed, as they did one day. And I had a very, very nasty 360s, several, several of them, actually. Anyway, that, that I kept, and then somebody came up to me and said, would I like to have a half share in a GT40? Well, I said, why not? Let's go mad. <laughs> in those days, a half share of a GT40 was £3,000. Oh, my goodness. Can't work that out in dollars in those days. It was too complicated. But it wasn't very much money compared to what they, what they go for now. Yes. And we did a South African series. Then the following year, I did the World Championship in the car. Success, yes. We came eighth, I think, at Reims. And we came another eighth at the Nürburgring in the, in the, in the 12 hours. I can't remember the Nürburgring. It was a 1,000 kilometer. That's what mm, it was. Okay. But we had a lot of fun with that car. Meanwhile, I was tucking in the odd bit of vintage racing at the same time. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I had a mother and father of accidents in 1968 when a wheel decided to come off at Brands Hatch. Ooh. It was a left-hand rear wheel going into a left-hand bend. So the thing, the thing turned over, went on fire. And there's some pretty spectacular pictures of that. But anyway, I crawled out, and I was fine. Oh, slightly, slightly, uh, slightly singed at the edges, perhaps. Oh, yes. I then did an extraordinary thing. I decided I'd go and... My, my love always was old Maseratis. And I was reading the Autosport magazine one day, and uh, there, advertised, was a Ma Cooper Maserati, Formula One car, two years old. So this is 1960. Late 68, I suppose, and the car must have been a 67, 66 car. 
and I looked at it, it was, it was three thousand pounds, and it included five engines. Oh wow! All lovely V twelve Maserati three liter units. Mm. Well, I was sold, wasn't I? I had to have that. Yes. So I waited one morning when it was delivered, and got into it, but I didn't get out of it, did I? Because <laughs> I'm six foot six and I'm two eighty pounds, and I stuck. <laughs> so that was the end of my my personal Formula One. Anyway, a week or two later, I get a telephone call from the Automobile Club of Monaco. If I could supply an accredited driver, would I like an entry? Oh. So, you know, in for a penny and for a pound. I said, yes, please. So I telephoned my old friend Vic Elford, and I said, look here, oh boy, would you like to have a go driving a Formula One car of mine? Well, he said, I'd love to do that. He said, I've just, I've just won a lot of sports car racing. Mm-hmm. As your enthusiastic people will know, I can't remember what he did. He won the Targa Floria, I think, two or three times. Yes. And he... He won the, he, that year, this, this was 69, he won the Monte Carlo Rally. And he said, well, what could be better than to actually win the rally and actually have a run in the race? Yes. <laughs> so that's what we did. And oddly enough, we came seventh and we finished. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. We were all a bit surprised by that. In which case, sort of things rather looked up. People weren't, people were a bit surprised. Yes. So I, so the great decision was taken to sell the car after a club race in the Grand Prix, and we went to McLaren. I remember this very, very well, seeing Bruce McLaren and Teddy Mayer and saying, look here, could I buy a car? <laughs> I suppose people didn't walk in and say that in these days. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I bought, and I can't really remember what it cost, I bought an M7B, I think it was, Oh. which I hadn't realized was a highly unsuccessful car built by McLaren the previous year. So anyway, we bought this thing, and we mod- modified it, because the first time we took it out, it was pretty slow compared to the rest of the cars. So we designed a wing, which we didn't have, we didn't have, we had high wings in those days, do you remember? And this was a, a rather like, we had cut, the wing was actually built into the frame, and it was a very wide car. And I reckon that, the, you know, if we played around with this, we'd be competitive. We were, we beat the works on four different Grand Prix. Wow. Um, I'd found our best. I think we came fifth in France, but people will correct me on that. I really can't remember where we came in these races. Eventually, the German Grand Prix, the Grand Prix came along, and we went off, and, and we did an incredibly fast practice time. I had a word with my man, Vic, and I said, no, you think you can go very fast? Mainly because I'd been offered one of those wonderful, complicated Omega stopwatches. <laughs> they said, if your man can do that, I'll give it to you. I said, all right, and I had a word with him. And we did whatever the time was, which was under five minutes or four minutes or something other. Mm-hmm. And we were third or fourth fastest on the grid. Wow. So that's what we saw. And he had, as the race day came, he had a diabolical start. He hadn't gone halfway around the circuit before he was taken off by Mario Andretti. Oh. And quite badly hurt. He broke his shoulder. Mm-hmm. Very badly. So that was, I thought, the end. That, I thought that was going to be the end of the Grand Prix. <laughs> My little play into Grand Prix cars. Right. Before we could say anything, I, I got an offer from the March company. Would I like to run a car, one of their cars? Ah. And I didn't have to pay for the car. I'd have to use my own engine, my own mechanics, obviously. And their driver I had to take on, it was a young, unknown fellow called Ronnie Peterson. <laughs> Ronnie Peterson, wow. Ronnie had won the Formula 3 race at Monaco for the two previous years. So I thought, well, he, he's, give him a try. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, we did a lot of Grand Prix. We got no points <laughs> the whole year. I think he was terrified that we were going to blow up. We only had the one engine. Ah, okay. Nowadays. 
But an engine in those days was £8,000. Again, I can't work that out, but it, by modern standards, it wasn't very much money. Lovely Cosworth V8. Fabulous thing. Anyway, that, that was the end of that. And I had, I had, in fact, an invitation to, would I be interested, or an inquiry, whether I'd be interested in running a private Ferrari. Mm. And the answer was no. And it was a very, <laughs> very good very good decision, because the 312 was a disastrous car. Yeah. And yeah. very little for the factory or anybody else. The, the sports cars were terrific, 312, but the GP cars were, were lousy. So I got that out of the way. I'd done my Formula One bit. And then I just went historic racing. I, I bought a couple of the works, uh, 59 or 60 Testarossa Ferraris, mm-hmm. one of which I ran, ran at uh, Pebble Beach at, at Monterey in, I suppose, 1956. It can't be 56. No, no, no. It must be 76. 76. There you go. God, I'm not that old. <laughs> in 1976, and had a great time there, sold it, then went back to England and started traveling the world, really, looking for, looking for motor cars. Mm-hmm. Harp, going back a few years, when I was doing my South African rally, I'd taken a short cut. I wanted to, I wanted to really go to Ethiopia. I wanted to see the emperor's horses, who were supposed to be magnificent. I went there. Well, the horses looked pretty, pretty half-knackered, and they, were, they weren't <laughs> worth the second look. The lions, we were told so much about, they looked half-dead, too, so we didn't stay very long, or I didn't. <laughs> Continued and flew to a place called Asmara, which used to be Italian, Italian protectorate before we took it from them during the war. Ah. And within a day, I found it... Uh, a small GP Maserati, a 1934 Monoposto. Little funny little thing, it was, it was an 1100cc, a very small car, but it was like brand new. Hardly ever. Ah, okay. So I said, my goodness me, what am I finding here? And I, before the day was out, I, we'd found a Ferrari. Nice. Now that got there, I had no idea, because it was a 1954, a Mondia. Mm-hmm. So, I, the, if you like, the torch was lit. Yes. And that was really the start of it all. And wow. Wow. Spent a time. I took, I think, 120 cars out of South America. And they're not all racing cars. I mean, we took Rolls Royces, anything that really came along. But right. my interest was in racing cars, and it was racing cars largely we took out. The last car I took out of South America was, in fact, a 58 pontoon-bodied Ferrari TR. Oh, my goodness. My goodness, the stories could go on and on here. They can go on, I can tell you, because I can tell you a lot more about some other places, too. But let's go on. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big part of your book and your autobiography, I'm sure, is for people to read and learn more about you. But as we move through your journey here, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote. Some kind of mantra, some kind of saying that's been instrumental or important to you in your life. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Colin, take the wheel. I think I'd be very, very short and easy it's a hobby that became a business. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it became, uh, from, from a fun hobby, it became a rather successful business in the end. Yes. Well, you have brought cars to people from all over the world, sold cars to people from all over the world, and that's been the primary part of what your business has been after the racing. Is that right? It was, really, yes. Well, let's go back in time here. I'm going to take you further back. And, I mean, you're There have been so many cars that have passed through your hands. This may be a tough question for you, but I want to go back and talk about what instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment when you think back, maybe in your boyhood or when you were a young man, when you really realized that cars were going to be your life? 
Well, I never really realized, I never really thought about my car as being my life till I was, uh, sort of, till I left the army. I had other things to think about, soldiering, sort of guarding the queen and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I suppose there were sort of various moments in my life which were, I suppose, pivotal. I suppose the fact my father had raced an Alfa Romeo at Brooklands before the war. We've got the pictures of that there in the book, actually. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, what, what has to really instigate it, there I was at, at a private school in the north of England, and my father arrives in a D-type Jaguar. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, that, that, was, that was it. I was, I was put in the passenger seat, and, of course, I was over six foot then, and I couldn't breathe because, of course, they didn't have a, a windshield on the passenger side. I didn't mind not breathing. It was the best thrill of my life. <laughs> it was unreal, unbelievable. We were doing yeah. 140 miles an hour in, you know, in the sort of North England roads. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine what fun. Well, I didn't worry about police cars and things like that in those days. A great, great weekend out. Wow, what fun. That's what set me off, I think. I think so. So, Colin, what I would love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down, which are many, many in your life. But I want you to take us to a really challenging time in your life, maybe a really painful time in your life, when you face failure or you face this great challenge. But the most important part of it is I'd like for you to share that particular event and then how did you overcome it, how did you move forward, and most importantly, what did it teach you? Getting under the hood was a challenge. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> the challenge was I, we, I went to strange countries like, like India and Pakistan, and to try and get a car out of there was like was really very very difficult and fairly dangerous. Mm. It's illegal, and you had to sort of break the law to get the things out. Oh my goodness! Exporting the cars always been. I mean, I, I specialize in exporting cars from funny places. Okay, and it's always a bit of a challenge. I think I got ninety percent of what I paid for out, uh -huh. but it, it wasn't always easy. Much later on, of course, I went to Cuba and had an outfield day there. Oh, my gosh. Well, take us, take us to one specific country, some crazy story you can share with us here of how you got the car out of the, the, the country, maybe just a few little things that happened during that process. I imagine we could talk for hours about some of your adventures. I was arrested in Argentina. I had a slightly dodgy moment in, in the south of France. Not a good day to talk about that, because my fire mother used to have a house very near Nice. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. And I had a starter pistol. We, we were playing silly asses, a friend of me, a friend of mine and myself. And we, ha we had a couple of horns that went, made the proper French police noise. Pa, 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 pa. <laughs> yes. We did this out of the window of the car. Then we suddenly heard, pa, 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 pa. And I said, funny, it's coming the other direction. And of course, uh, some reported us. Yeah. Those were the days of... The, terror, the big terrorist OAS problems in the, in the early 60s. Mm. Actually, we've got the same sort of thing now, haven't we? I know. It seems like we just have not been able to improve, have we? Oh, my gosh. Going through a happy time here at the moment. No, we're not. So these adventures of, of getting cars out of countries, a lot of countries, they just they won't let you bring them out. Is that right? No, I mean, in India, it was, it was simply illegal. Ah, okay. They were considered of national importance. Ah, okay. Uh, we fought that very simply by saying, well, look here, you kicked the British out, and the British made your car, so why shouldn't we take them out? I'm sure that went over well. In, in all those years, I only got one car out of India. Oh, wow. Yeah. And a friend of mine, I, I used to do a lot of hunting, a lot of shooting. 
and I shot various times in India. And one of the people I shot, I shot with had, a, had quite a nice silver ghost, 1920 Rolls Royce. And I said to him, if, if we can get this car out, shall we split the profit? And he said, yeah, let's just do that. Well, it came out. We had lunch with the head customs officer, and I think he was given a few partridges to keep him quiet. Mm-hmm. And the thing came out without any trouble at all. But this is much later. It's about 1982. I see. And I, when I'd sort of given up in South America. And I just had a go at India. India was, had been pretty well. People had been smuggling cars out of India for years. But it just wasn't my scene. It, I, hadn't, I hadn't got into that flow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the card I'm probably best known for was getting the, the Grand Prix Mercedes out of East Germany in 1968. Is that the car that's owned by Bernie Ecclestone now? It was owned by Bernie. Bernie sold it. Had about three owners since. Ah, okay. Okay. But I know the car. It's owned by a German now. Okay. Absolutely fabulous car. And we rebuilt the thing. with a lot of help from the trade. Yes. And it was a hill, it had been converted into a hill climb car. But it, with the, when we checked out the chassis numbers, it was the most successful Mercedes of all of them. One driven by uh, Caracciola on more occasions than not. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Come to certain things, I met Mrs. Caracciola at Indianapolis in 1968. (laughs) (laughs) The stories can go on and on here. I'll tell you another one about Indianapolis. I went with a friend of mine who remained nameless, and we met Tony Halman, who, of course, owned the circuit. Yes. And would I like to stay in the circuit? And I said, sure, sure. I didn't know what he meant. And I found myself sharing a, a sort of building inside the circuit with Paul Newman and Robert Wagner. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, oh, my gosh. Wagner being by far, far and away the easiest of the two. Wow. We had supper together, breakfast together, and we, you know, played around together for a couple of days. Wow. It's the parades. I've never forgotten Indianapolis. It was one of the great moments of my life, actually. I think if, if you're so. you're VIP, it, doesn't, it really helps. <laughs> uh, yes, that's always a nice way to go. Well, Colin... Let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share one of those many aha moments that you've had in your career. I like to say it's a time when the headlights come on, the marshals line up the road, and they kind of steer your way down a new path, a new direction that you had for your business or your career. Tell us about one of those aha moments, would you? Well, I suppose <laughs> the aha moment of all moments, Johnny Nelly, was when I eventually had permission to go to Cuba. That took a year to get a visa. Mm-hmm. And I'd practically forgotten when suddenly the thing came through and I had to catch the next flight virtually to get there. Wow. I had a long talk with Andrew White, who wrote the history on, on Jaguars. Mm-hmm. I said, are there any Ds missing? He said, between you and me, there could be one in Cuba, but I don't know. Mm. So, I, so that sort of G'd me up. And nobody else had been to Cuba. So I thought I would go to Cuba. Mm-hmm. So I went to Cuba. There you are. Day one. I, f- I find a D-type Jaguar. On the first day? On the first day. I only had a visa for a week. Oh, my goodness. The first car we looked at was a 1905 Cadillac. I certainly didn't want that. At vast price. Then we went on. And I saw, this is a great story, I saw over a fence of a little house in the garden what I thought was an E-type bonnet lying part, you know, up against a, a wall, a fence. Mm-hmm. And I put two and two together. I said, well, E-types didn't come out until three, two or three years after Castro had taken the place over. And I realized I'd struck gold at that moment. Wow. So that, And I found the rest of the car within about 10 minutes. Oh, my goodness. And was it genuine? Oh, yes, it was genuine. It had all the correct numbers on it and everything. Oh, gosh. 
And the following, and two days later, I found the engine. So, you know, <laughs> that was a good, that was a pretty big moment in life. Oh, yeah. What happened? But there was an even bigger moment in the same trip. Well, there was lots of manana, manana, come back manana. And I'm a bit nervy at those sort of moments. And so I came back manana. And what do you think I saw? Another D-type parked outside this fellow's house. Oh, my gosh. This time, and they weren't D, that, forgive me, they're XKSSs. Oh. Which is, which is the same thing, but rather nicer, because it's a two-seater. Oh, yeah. And this was on its wheels. This was complete. Oh, my gosh. And, I, and I, I bought them both. In fact, I bought 31 cars in Cuba in the end. Uh, now, were they hard to get out of Cuba? No, they were super easy to get out of Cuba. Oh, okay. The Cubans couldn't have been nicer, easier. And well, in, I suppose in 1970, 1986, 87, when I was sort of just about clean Cuba out, I was invited to this, my, my minister's house, or the minister of whatever he was, and he produced a copy of, I think, Road and Track, and he said, you are not paying very much for these cars. Well, I said, some of us have got to make money, haven't we? <laughs> and he laughed. I never got another car out. He tried to set me up with a hooker, and we laughed about that. Yeah, yeah. She, she wasn't good-looking enough. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. That's how they operate, of course. That's the old Eastern block tricks. Yeah. Anyway, it led on to something else, of course. I said, well, what else can I buy? How about cigars? They come. Yeah, cigars, yeah. Well, how many do you want? What do you want? Come with me. So we went down, and I, I ended up by buying a 1,000 cigars. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> boxes and boxes and boxes of cigars. And the price was nothing. It was a tenth of the, of the, of the price you paid over the counter at the shop. Right. And that was amazing. So I, at the moment, I, I bought these. Letter of credit went through. Everything went right. I go back to England. And a friend of mine has been made redundant from a company that sold cigars and alcohol. And I said, you want a job? And he said, no, we're not really. He, didn't, he thought I was kidding. <laughs> I wanted somebody to handle this side of the business. Wow. Anyway, so I said, oh, that was all right, except I then had the crash that finished my, most of my career. I, got, I went to Elton Park in a Talbo Largo Grand Prix, Grand Prix car. Oh, my goodness. 1949, four and a half litre things. Big, tough, sturdy car. Yes. Which was, well, lucky it was sturdy, because I got hit side-on by a fellow doing 45 miles an hour, which put me in hospital for the best part of six months, broke every rib in my body, and just about every other bone. Oh, my gosh. I'm quite lucky to be here at all. And that's why I'm, I'm on sticks and why I'm limping around. And I've Have I raced a car since? Yeah, I, I have. I, I drove a, a Group 4 Daytona up um, Mont Ventoux in 1980. Uh, 1992, and that was the end, really, except for a few vintage car rallies. Wow, wow. Well, Colin, I'm having so much fun with you here. What I'd like to do is I'd like to make your show into two shows here on Cars, yeah? <laughs> I think we could talk for hours and hours, and I'm pretty sure that the Cars, yeah listeners... I talk a lot of rubbish, you know, that's why. I'm very sure that the Cars, yeah listeners would love to hear more of your story. So we're going to make this a two-part show. So this is the end of Part one here on Cars Yeah. And I want to remind our listeners that again, go to carsyeah.com and subscribe. And after the part two show is done, Colin's going to be so kind to give away a copy of his new book titled Thrill of the Chase. So uh, make sure you do that. And we'll be back for the next show in just a few minutes. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? 
Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah! Yeah!